The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. We have about 10 people in the room and about 90 on Zoom right now. And a big welcome to the spring class. It's sort of a shorter Buddhist studies. Often there are eight weeks, but we have four weeks to study sensuality, craving, contentment, and dispassion. And it really goes to the heart of the Buddhist teachings. I think, you know, of course there have been a lot of wise people through human history, and uh, some of those folks, their teachings have lived on after them, which is great for us. But one of the unique additions from the Buddhist teachings is really around how to relate to sensuality. And uh, one of the central questions that we can explore this week, this first week of the Course, is just to observe our own relationship to the world of experience. And I'll just give you some possibilities that might show up. But we often, one way, one common way, is we relate to sensuality, to sense experience, as if it's a little bit like the Christian story of the Garden of Eden. Its purpose, the world's purpose, is to create the conditions for me to be happy. You know, it's like the beauty of nature is here for me to enjoy or the good food, or the good friends, or the nice clothes, or... And if I'm not enjoying my sense experience, it's like somebody's messing with my paradise, or I got a raw deal, you know. There's lots of nice stuff, but for some reason I didn't get my share. But the general idea is that the point of being embodied, having this opportunity to have sense experience, is really, it's sort of my playground or my working space where I'm collecting nice sense experiences, learning how to collect just the right sense experiences until I'm happy. And I think, I mean, that may not ring true to you, but I'm trying to characterize what I think is, for us, I put myself here too, a predominant way that all of us, I don't think it's just Western culture, that all of us relate to sense experience. We're in this sort of agitated struggle to get sense experience to make us happy. I'm a little too cold, I'll go get a sweater. I'm a little too bored, I'll turn on a TV program. I'm a little bored, I'll go eat something. I've eaten too much, I'll take an apple seltzer or a thumbs or whatever. And on and on like that. We're just sort of tweaking with whatever degrees of freedom, whatever power we have to affect the world of sense experience, sensuality. We keep 
messing with it to try to get it just right. And there's an unspoken assumption behind that, which is, when I get it right, I'll be happy. So that the place to become happy is in the world of sense experience and getting it just right. And if when we're unhappy, we think, well, I haven't done my job yet, or somebody's getting in the way of me doing my job of getting the right sense experiences. And then sometimes when, just through fortune or fate or random, whatever the causes are, and we have a string of really difficult experiences in this sense world, then we can have this kind of opposite view where we really think, you know, it's out to get me. <laughs> and, and we're sort of looking for the next terrible thing. Bump my head or step into a cold puddle of water or get some bad news from a friend or, you know, look at the news and see what's happening in the world and my heart breaks. And, and we can almost feel sometimes like it's personal that the world, sensuality, the difficulty of a sense experience. And remember, sense experience includes the whole relational field, like our hearts breaking because of a difficult relationship. Somebody insults us or abuses us. We can really feel sometimes like the world is out to get me. And I'm just here, like, my relationship to sensuality is to survive with the fewest number of scars, you know, the fewest wounds, just to minimize the damage, right? That's sometimes how it is for us. I'm just trying to keep it from getting worse. And we tend to swing back and forth, you know, when, when we get a good run of luck, you know, good fortune. Then we, then it kind of, we can switch back to the, oh yeah, maybe I can make this thing, my life, really work. Just got to tweak it a little bit more. Just got to lock in the good stuff and tease out a few more bad things. And then when we have a run of really difficult, challenging experience, then we can fall into that other point of view where it's sort of thinking the world is uh, out to get me. And in a way, in a stereotypic way, in sort of Buddhism, and especially in sort of the folk religious part of Buddhism, you know, lay existence, those of us who aren't nuns and monks or haven't become monastics, we're sort of, our lives as a lay person is characterized by trying to make life work for us, sense experience work for us, and trying to get some happiness. And the kind of stereotype or the shadow even of monasticism is like having given up on sense experience. So I've become a celibate, I only wear a few robes, you know, they just have these, they're basically like in the tropics, they're bed sheets, dyed using a root, I mean traditionally they use a jackfruit root, I think it's called and they, you know, boil this root of a plant that has that kind of orangey, reddish color. 
and they dye their robes, and they, they're just like sheets, and they wrap, they have sort of ways to wrap them around their body, and uh, they have a few other possessions traditionally, but not too many things. And they can't store food, they gotta receive food from lay people every day if they're gonna eat, because they can't keep things overnight. And basically you're not really eating past midday. So as soon as you can see the lines in your hand, in the morning, you can go walking for alms round, but not, it has to be light enough that when you extend your arm like this, you get to see the lines in your hand. That's how they tell, you know, this is in the time of the Buddha before watches. And uh, so from that time until sun at midday, they can receive and eat food. But generally they, they don't have to, but there's sort of an etiquette to just have one meal but, you know, depending on the situation, you can, you can have two meals or whatever during that time. But then you sort of fasting all afternoon, evening, until the next morning when you receive food. So that, that sort of vibe that can exist is, oh, I became a monastic because I saw the agitation, I saw the frustration, I saw the limitations of trying to find happiness through sense experience. Now, of course, monastics, they have sense experience. They have their little hut that they stay in maybe, or sit under a tree, or, you know, sometimes people give them good food. But the, the point is they're cultivating a contentedness with what they're offered as opposed to a lifestyle of pursuing what we want. So lay, like just as symbols, the sort of symbolic, uh, you know, representation of a worldly person is a lay person whose objective is to get what makes me happy and to stay away from what makes me unhappy. And the objective of a monastic is, having seen the limitations of sensuality, I'll take enough, I'll participate enough in sensuality to be healthy, but I'll spend the bulk of my time curious about a happiness that isn't based on sensuality. And then that should just beg the question for all of us, like, do we know anything about a happiness that's not based on sensuality? And uh, so the purpose of the sit tonight, and I encourage you to really emphasize this um, for these weeks, because we can practice in a more open way all day long, meditate as you're doing your life, aware of what's ever predominant, and just the exposure to the diversity of our experience. But in the set, I'd really encourage you <clears throat> to practice retreating from sensuality. The way we do that is we decide that we'll pay attention to one aspect of sensuality and not pay attention to all the other aspects of sensuality. You can choose which aspect you're gonna pay attention to. It could be just, sometimes people use simple touch points, like where their hands are touching their legs, 
or they're using a couple so the mind doesn't get so bored. They'll feel their hands touching and maybe feel the sits bones touching and then maybe feel the lips touching and then the hands, the sits bones and the lips. And that's all. And they turn away from, like the mind of course will still have the impulse to notice a sight or to hear a sound. And we don't, we're not afraid of those distractions or interruptions it's more about cultivating an interest in the chosen meditation object. And as I try to suggest in the guided instructions, when we do, when the mind is responsive to its request, honey, just pay attention to this. Can you keep this in mind? Just go for it. You don't need to know why. Just do it. It's not harmful. You know, just tracking the breath coming in, tracking the breath going out. But at some point, that seclusion, the relative simplicity, the relative absence of the mind noticing other sense experiences and having reactions to them, there arises a sense of calm, tranquility, a lightness of joy, ease of heart, ease of well-being, a wholeness. And we want to start to notice now this pleasure of seclusion is relatively subtle. You know, when we eat a bag of Doritos, that's a pretty gross, intense experience. Gross not in a negative sense, but it's like strong. <laughs> or maybe it's negative for some of us. <laughs> but yeah, you know, someone was just, oh, Alice was just saying that yeah, I think it was Cheetos that she... <laughs> anyway, another story. <clears throat> so, but when this, we're learning in, let's call it an unworldly, a non-sensual pleasure, because the pleasure we're starting to sense is the mind not so agitated by sensuality, but it's actually pleasurable. But its cause is more about what's not there than what is there. You know, when we get snuggled in our bed and we've got our music on, or Wynn and I have a salt lamp, some of you have seen those, it creates a nice little glow in the room, you know, and hear our cat snoring over there, and, you know, we got our nice sheets that we like, and a nice blanket, and it's big windows looking at a nice cedar tree. So it's, you know, over the years we've made a really pleasant spot, but then we're dependent on it. You know, like if there's a stain on something, or there's a leak, or the cat vomits, or, you know, whatever, then it's like, and even before those bad things happen, when we have nice sense, sense experience, even though we're not aware that we're afraid of losing what we like, that fear of losing what we like is there, even when we're not aware of it. Like, you may not be aware <clears throat> of the fear of death, but that doesn't mean it isn't doing its thing here and now, in the space of the body and mind, heart, you know, that anxiety, just because it isn't on the surface and awareness isn't aware of it, is there. So one of the things we notice when 
we are with the breath and we get some continuity with the breath or whatever your chosen meditation object is, we start to feel, experience directly, a kind of good feeling, a a well-being that isn't dependent on my bedroom being really nice or my cat being cute or having good food to eat. And that's, like, I think it's useful to call it a non-worldly, otherworldly, unworldly, these are, you know, words we use, non-sensual happiness. The happiness of non-attachment or the happiness of non-dependence. Like, oh, I could do that, but I don't have to do that. There's, there's some real freedom in that. And that's sort of, that's one of the things we're going to be exploring because the, you know, the opening question for us to explore these four weeks is everybody talks about happiness and now it's kind of like an industry. I'll send out the link for an article written by Musang, somebody I know, and he was one of the scholars at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. It's an important organization in our lineage. They, although they have teachings from all the different Buddhist schools, it was started by IMS people, and it's on the same campus there in Massachusetts. It's really a great place. They do really nice programs, at, both online and in person. And uh, Musang was there for decades. He just recently retired. And he has a nice article about the pursuit of happiness and how it's kind of become an industry and has sucked in a lot of Buddhism in the West, sort of gotten caught up in this happiness industry, which is sort of not in line with the way that Buddha taught because it's not that there isn't real happiness. I mean, this is why, because there is this real sensual happiness, That's why it's confusing. But it's fundamentally limited. That's what we have to see. It is nice. I mean, hopefully everyone here, online, in the room, you know, we hopefully can bring to mind times in our life where the sense experience was really satisfying. Yeah, Lewis. Um, This is bringing so many thoughts right now. Maybe you want substance. I'm wondering if you can make a distinction between attachment and being in union with. Yeah, so Lewis asked, for those of you online, uh, making the distinction between attachment and union. And this is the thing, like, uh, the breath is sensual, or even all of us here, those of you online, those of us in the room, just that nice community feeling, like feeling, hey, we're here together, trying to understand our heart and mind better. And, and there's a good feeling. And so which of that is sensual and what of that is non-sensual? And so it's really about, like we often use sensual experience to open to non-sensual experience. That's the whole spiritual path, like beautiful ritual or singing 
drumming, dancing together, right? These are common human activities, and it's a powerfully sensual experience, right? Sound, sight, sometimes, you know, incense, you know, sage. I mean, it's like all the senses get engaged. That's good ritual does that, right? It, it really uh, is compelling. It brings us in, it rivets the mind to the present moment because it's so interesting. The sensual experience is so interesting. But then something happens, which is, it's precisely because the mind is really present, then something else is known that's there but is often missed, and that's that unification and just the nature of the mind itself. And that's really the, the transition. We're, we're, we're either going to use sensuality to feed craving and attachment, endless rounds, what we call samsara, or we're going to use sensuality to get to know something beyond sensuality, let's say. So, and that's, I didn't mention this, but that's the third alternative. Like I said, well, we either think sensuality is here to make me happy, or we think sensuality is here to torture me, you know, to beat me up, spit me out. But the third is, sensuality is here, it's to be used as a teacher. Like how to creatively relate to sensuality, to learn about, to wake up to what isn't being seen. Yeah, and that's where ritual and meditation come in, right? If they're designed right, they create the conditions to learn about the nature of the heart and mind, not just to indulge in the nice, beautiful ritual, right? It's to go beyond the smells, the rhythms of the drumming, the beautiful chanting, the, you know, whatever whatever's going on. That's just to break the spell. Like, you know, I'm always, I'm worried about my to-do list and wondering if that person's attracted to me and we got all those things. And then, you know, the priestesses and the people running the ceremony, they got all the, they pull out all the stops and they create something of real beauty and we let go of the more gross end of sensuality, which is, you know, does that person like me? And is that person going to beat me up? And what are they cooking in the kitchen? And and we're we're sort of spellbound by the beauty of the ritual, and it starts to unify the mind. And because the mind isn't distracted, the ritual is holding the attention, right? And it's a beautiful sensual experience. It holds, it captures the attention, and if the right invitations are given like the meaning of the ritual, what the people are saying, the purpose of the ritual, is to then use the power of that unification, the gathering of the energies of the mind and heart, to see what hasn't been seen. And that's the deal. And so how can we do that in our life? Like, you know, as lay people, it's really appropriate for us to you know, because we're going to engage in sensuality anyway, so instead of this endless pursuit to have more kitchen gadgets or whatever our thing is, you know, we all have a thing, 
Some of it's, you know, having the latest technology. You know, it's like, we always laugh at some people who collect things, like, is it in North Dakota or Minnesota, the person with the biggest ball of twine? Oh, maybe it's Iowa. I forget where it is. It's somewhere in the Midwest. Guinness Book of Records, you know, these sort of silly things. But we have our own version of it. You know, the things that are in the cupboard or in the closet that we just can't get rid of because I might need it or whatever it is. And, uh, and the thing is, it, it really entraps the mind. And it can even be traveling, you know, or learning new things. Going on more Buddhist retreats can be somebody's addiction to sensuality. Kind of collecting teachers. Oh, I know that teacher. Oh, I know that. You know, there are people like that. It's like who's the who's the new hot teacher? Okay, gonna learn about what they have to say. Listen to their talks. Maybe go on a retreat with them. Be one of their students. Oh, this person's hot. Okay, we'll go there. So there's any number of ways, and and there's always that split. Like, am I using sensuality? to make me happy, always feeling betrayed, thinking it's really out to get me, because it doesn't make me happy, and it's so frustrating, it's a real betrayal. Like, how many relationships? Each time we get in a new, it's like, come on, the others didn't do it, but you gotta make me happy, <laughs> you know? So, the alternative is like, we still have to use sensuality, but how can I use sensuality to go beyond it? And it's not like we're going beyond sensuality to leave it behind. We just need, the heart needs the big picture. And the picture we have, the picture we know well is, I'm just a beast trying to be happy and safe in a sensual world and not finding that I can do it. I find it a, a setup over and over again. And it's because it's not that there's a problem with sensuality, the problem is that we're not seeing the whole picture. That's that uh, that story I often tell from the suttas, where there's a lay person discussing the Buddhist teaching with some monks after their main meal, late morning, when they would usually talk practice together before they'd go off to their own little huts or camps to practice in the afternoon and evening. They'd kind of swap notes and learn from each other. And they were discussing like, is the problem, is the reason we suffer that we're sensitive? So if we just weren't so sensitive, then there wouldn't be so much suffering? And then the other half were arguing, no, no, it's not that we're sensitive, it's that we don't have the right experiences to be sensitive to. We need better sense experiences than what we have, better food, better campsites, better robes, you know, whatever. And so they were arguing, and this layperson comes, and he was pretty respected as someone who really understood the Buddhist teachings, and they asked him for his opinion. And he said, it's not because of the sensitivity, and it's not because of the sense experience. It's because something happens when there's a sensitive heart having a sense experience, seeing a sight, having a taste, hearing a sound, thinking a thought, something arises in conjunction with sensitivity connecting with the sense experience. And that's called attachment, right? 
that grasping, that attachment, that sense of a somebody trying to extract something from sensuality. That can go away. So this is another like homework for us this week is in just ordinary ways, whether you're walking from your car to wherever you're going, or you're having a meal, or you're hanging out with a friend, or whatever it is, you're petting your dog. But but plant the seed now, because you want to remember. And then just see, like, can I be intimate with the sensuality, unified, like all there, 100%, but not trying to get anything from the sense experience, not trying to feed on it, extract anything from it. And that's just interesting. Like, I notice like when I'm chewing food, for example, you know, and it's, let's say, presumably it's pleasant, and, but do we need the sense of a somebody indulging or needing the pleasure of the taste? Or can there just be the intimacy, like the mind can be really unified around the taste. This is from a, a Zen teacher, Roshi Nancy Baker. She wrote, the odd thing about pleasure is that instead of fully enjoying what is here, being able to be fully present with it, we are busy looking for more. We miss the true depth of pleasure by being intoxicated with the possibility of more. Or that, you know, it's the, the classic would be we're eating something we really like and we're wondering if there's going to be seconds. We're not really in the experience. Or another example of this, I mean, it's just so silly, but it's so true for us. We're all, finally, we get on a vacation. It's great. And we're thinking about another, oh, i got to do this more. Right? We're not really there. Or we're finally getting our Buddhist meditation retreat and we're planning future Buddhist meditation retreats. All this sort of stuff. And it's because there's an idea of a somebody who's dependent on sensuality and is trying to get something so I'll be saved. Yeah, Lewis, looks like you have more to say. So, I'm, I'm thinking about when we're, usually when we're inside of our mothers, without anything intellectual about it, we have this sense of the mind being completely embraced. Mm -hmm. That's the whole world to us, being embraced. And when we're born... Actually, why don't you just stand here? When we're born, you mean to open? Yeah. So if the people online here, you can stand right here so they can see it. When you're bit. born, you're pushed out into this cold world, and then you begin to experience just the trauma of being in this, the process of being born, being in this world. Then there's the nurturance, hopefully from your mother, nursing, but then experiencing hunger. And the Buddha said um, that to be born, you're stepping into suffering, and that life is this negotiation 
of dealing with suffering, hopefully off and on. But somebody like me, my ancestors uh, experienced the Atlantic slave trade. Um, some of them were Native Americans living on this land and being removed from it. And some of my ancestors were Irish who were in an environment where the whole slavery system was perpetrated on them first and they experienced hunger and starvation. And so those of us who have immediate trauma or intergenerational trauma, we do a lot of things in order to comfort ourselves from those historical and immediate experiences, which is, can be overwhelming. Yeah. So, um, sensuality, you know, it's a double-edged thing because I think we have a, I think we have a right to be comforted, but the nature of that comforting can either help us understand that all of life is interconnected because for instance, uh, sexuality, orgasm, puts you in this place of feeling for some moments connected to everything. Um, I think there are people who have orgasm and feel <laughs> yucky too, but yeah. I know what you mean. Okay. <laughs> it goes both ways. Uh, and there's a number of things, you know, like for me, like walking by the river in the woods, I disappear and I feel like my sense of me disappears into everything I'm surrounded by. And that's the sense, that sensuality and it's peace and there might be an addictive edge to it. <laughs> But I don't think I'm hurting anybody. I'm not hurting myself. So this presentation tonight just kicked up all of that stuff for me. Yeah. And I, I don't think I'm the only one. Yeah. Well, thanks, Lois. And just that, going back to that point about comfort, absolutely. Like, you, you wouldn't want to give this teaching people who are being abused or being taken advantage of and who don't have comfort, they need comfort. But, so the, the whole point is first like, do whatever we can to have a comfortable sensual existence because it's only then when we are curious about the limitations, like, it didn't really make me happy. It's a lot better than being uncomfortable, no doubt but I'm still agitated. I'm still, I have the agitation of being dependent on my comfort. And I'm in a world that is uncertain, so my comfort isn't certain. I worked hard to get it, and I can't depend on it. And I'll, I'll send out a, a sutta that just, you know, the Buddha talks about, well, what are the drawbacks of sensuality? 
You know, and one of the things he says, I'll go through this. Now, what practitioner is the allure of gratification? So he always talks about what do you get from sense experience? What are the drawbacks? And what's the escape? So the allure is sort of what you would think, right? There are experiences from all of our senses that are agreeable, pleasing, charming, endearing, fostering desire, enticing, right? And there's joy that you get from that. And the Buddha would say, you know, he did say, in terms of that experience of pleasure, nobody's experienced it as much as me. I mean, more than me. Meaning like, I really paid attention to pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant touches, pleasant taste, pleasant smells, pleasant thoughts. I really paid attention. I really know that experience. I wasn't afraid of it. And then the drawbacks. He says, I paid attention to drawbacks. And what are the drawbacks of sensuality? There is the case on the count of an occupation by which a person makes a living, whether checking or accounting, calculating, plowing, trading, cattle tending, archery, soldier, Whatever the occupation may be, one faces cold, faces heat, being harassed by mosquitoes and flies, wind and sun, creepy things, dying from hunger and thirst. That's a drawback. And then there's all the insecurity, right? That you uh, gain some, you work hard, but you don't gain any wealth from it. The efforts are fruitless. That's a drawback. Or let's say you gain a lot of wealth. Then you have to protect it. Governments might want to tax it away or people might want to steal it. And he goes on about all the quarrels that happen around possessions. You know, like the war in Ukraine. It's just like people thinking, you're part of us. You don't get to be independent, you know. And it's, it's all about this possessiveness and about what I think I need to feel secure. And we're in that world. It's a... It's a competitive world. I sometimes mention when I was practicing as a monk in Burma, uh, the dogs in the monastery were in heat. And the way the meditation hall was, it was a big building, but it was all screen. There was no wall. I mean, there were boards holding the screens together. So the dogs would be, you know, you'd sit on a platform right next to the screens because it was so hot. And the dogs were, you know, 10 feet away, fighting to you know, fornicate with the female dogs. And it was just, and you know, they'd be so vicious with each other. And you know, we're, our mind, heart, bodies are conditioned not so differently than these other mammals. And this is the world of sensuality. And we're not being afraid of it or uh, or rejecting it doesn't work. Remember, that was the real turning point for the Buddha when he realized that ascetic practices wasn't the way. And we're looking for a way to be a sensual being, because that's what we are. We're a sensual being. So how are we going to do this? So the first thing we need to do is we need to feel safe. But we don't want to wrongly think that safety will do it. And we know people who will have that relative safety. They're wealthy enough, they have enough friends, 
but they're not happy in a lasting or a trustworthy way, right? And if they are, or if you are, then you're okay. And the question is like, to be curious about it. Is there some dependence on something that's not dependable? Because as long as I'm, like I feel that way all the time, I really, you know, Wynn and I, I mean it's modest, but we have a really comfortable home. And I, I, I think appropriately, I fear my attachment to my comfort. And I got a car, I used to have a car that didn't, it's always problematic. The battery was always going out on it, so finally I got a, another car, and it's completely, right now, trustworthy. Until it isn't, you know, but right now. And I, I feel that, I think appropriate, like, I really like having a car that starts when you turn the key. And it's not fancy, but it really works. And I really like that. And, you know, to live close to the co-op and be able to get good food, I really like that. But I can't count on it always being that way. So what are we going to do about that realization when we have enough comfort, not perfect comfort, but enough, enough safety, not perfect, but enough. What are we going to do? What do we do about the fact that it's not certain, that it's not dependable? And any idea I have of it needing to be dependable and needing to be certain is suffering here and now for me. Well, what happens if, if wind leaves? Or what happens if our cat gets hit by a car like our other cat did? Or what happens if I get sick? So for homework this week, just like I mentioned a few things, but just to break down your experience, like whenever you're doing something like, I'm eating a meal, okay, what's the pleasure of this meal? Like, just honestly, I just want to be really wholly present with the pleasure of this. The Buddha suggests that there's some drawbacks. What's the drawback of this? Don't believe that the drawbacks check. What are the drawbacks? Is there a way for my heart to be really intimate with the sense pleasure or the sense experience, but not dependent? So that's the third thing, the escape. That just means we're a sensual being having sensual experiences, but we've escaped the dependence. So what does that look like? To be in love with another human being, to have a nice relationship with another human being, a good friendship, but not uh, dependent on it, knowing that it can come and go, and making peace with whatever fear that is. Okay, that car, it's like uh, Ajahn Chah, the well-known Thai teacher, he talked about having, uh, he had a, someone gave him a really nice teacup, which was a little unusual for a monk to have a, a nice teacup, and uh, somebody, you know, kind of asked him about it because it was a little out of place. And he says, oh, I just, I'm always imagining it's already broken. Right? So that's the thing. It's like, ah, oh, okay. We can have a relationship with a partner, let's say, or we can 
raise kids or we can have a nice this or a nice that because it's what arises in conjunction with a sense experience in a heart that's sensitive is there any attachment is there any dependence is there any suffering is there any drawback that's what we're interested in how to be a central being but clean no residual no suffering that's it and the thing is we don't know you know if we have a lot of good fortune we may not know if there's attachment how are we going to discern if there's attachment to our sense experiences and our sense pleasures oh I could have lunch today I've got all this great food I wonder what happens if I just don't eat lunch I mean that would be so shocking for us to do that even in a playful way I'm just going to skip lunch I'm pretty sure I won't die and just see that part of the mind's condition just freak out what do you mean you're not going to have lunch it's right there it's your food you know and you're not going to eat it and it's a little bit like that when we sit in meditation it's like you feel a little cramp or something and you know you're sitting alone let's say at home you could move no one's going to know what's the problem it's not wrong to move when you're meditating but just to hold still like to renounce that dependence on that or you're a little cold you could put a sweater on but you don't and remember the point isn't to be an ascetic where you think having nice sense experiences is dangerous because that's a that's a real element in all the spiritual traditions you know that element i mean think of the sun dance and the indigenous people here and this world and uh you know the christians who <laughs> they and it gets it gets to be weird these a lot of these sort of ascetic practices and what the buddha came to was simplicity like health is good a certain degree of comfort is good but it, but there needs to be sort of a, a understanding that it's limited so really take up that study of okay what's the gratification here what what is the actual plus that the heart's receiving is there anything here what's what if any agitation tension what's the drawback what kind of seeds are getting planted that are tight and how might i be the person eating this meal or watching this tv show without any uh thing left over any negative seed any negative tendency you know it's like you shut it off and there are former episodes that you've already paid for but you choose not to watch it right and what's that feeling like it's like a little death the person that wants to watch it has to die right because the person that thinks you should go to bed has the microphone or has you know the power to say no you're going to bed and so that's the drawback is like when we have something really nice we don't want it to end and we often spoil our nice experiences because we don't want them to end 
we don't know how to let it end. And you know how that is, like with, uh, with friendships, and you do something nice, and how to bring it to an end, like some gathering or some event that you did together. And just how to... Because often what we do is we, we run it, we run it, until we really don't want to... It's not pleasant anymore. Same with food, right? It's like, we don't stop eating the ice cream when it's still delicious. I mean, maybe we do if we're with other people, but when we're alone, you know, we stop eating it, a lot of us, when it's no longer pleasant. Right? We've sort of kept trying to get as much pleasantness out of it and now, you know, because the stomach is so full or we're numb from the sweetness or whatever, it's just not pleasant anymore. And to really see that tendency in the mind. And maybe you're one of those really disciplined people, you know, where you can just have a little taste and put it away. But there's tension in that too. It's sort of like, I know it's there for me and it's mine. And just in case I'm going to put my name on it, you know, and I'll mention to the people I live with, by the way, that's mine, and I'm going back for it, just because I'm not a pig like you and eat it all at once, I'm going back for that, right? So even that is tight. And it's just interesting for us to explore these weeks, like, how can I have some nice things in my life without being tight about it? without it being the cause for suffering. And here's the other thing that we often don't think about is so much of our pleasantness that we can experience, nice clothes, and this goes back to some of what you were saying, Lewis, you know, it's built on the backs of slavery, slavery and, you know, genocide of the indigenous people and so many oppressive systems that allows us to afford the pants that I buy because people aren't getting paid a fair wage and or living in polluted areas because of the things that they're making. So a lot of our comforts come at a cost, certainly to the planet and to often to other people. And so that kind of even interrupts the ordinary pleasure of having nice stuff is knowing, I mean, just the, when and I just paid like 140 bucks for this company that recycles, guarantees the recycle plastic bags and I think it's Ridwell or something like that. Maybe some of you have heard of it. We're just starting it, we're just getting to know it. You know, just to kind of, so we're not contributing to so much plastic and other waste in our landfills, in our lakes and stuff. But when we consider the cost of our comfort, it takes away some of the comfort, doesn't it? Like, oh, these people are suffering and it related to me being comfortable is the fact of other people being uncomfortable in little and not so little ways. And then it really makes us wonder, like, so what, what do we do with the sensual life? What is our relationship to sensuality? Rejecting it is, it is a heavy suffering trip. And the Buddha tried it, and people try it, and maybe we've all tried it to some degree. For uh, eight years, in my 20s and very early 30s, I didn't date, I didn't have sexual relations with other people. 
And it was just like I was really didn't, didn't want to be confused and wanted to do my spiritual practices. And but it but it it was sort of this fear, partly based on this fear of complications. You know, it wasn't that I wasn't a sexual being and didn't have sexual attraction. I was just choosing not to listen to it, or not with other people at least. And uh, it just got unhealthy, I think. And luckily, there, you know, my partner showed up. And but it's not that that's perfect. But it was kind of a turning. I mean, that the relationship is perfect. I mean, it's a, I think it's a good relationship, but it's still imperfect. But what is really true for me is this ideal. You know, this ideal that oh, I don't need this. I don't need to listen to this desire or this impulse in my heart to be in a partnership or to have sexual relations with another human being. And just because it isn't about the sense experience and it isn't about being sensitive, it's really seeing what arises in conjunction, that attachment, the dependence on sensuality. So in little ways we can just experiment having a meal without attachment, without dependence. And you can just like little play, playful things. You take a spoon, you put the uh, spoon of your soup or whatever, you put the spoon down and you wait until you see in your heart the desire for the next spoon, the need. There's a sense of a me who needs another spoon of this. It just, just helps us be more honest about our relationship to the soup. And, and can we make peace with that subtle, unpleasant feeling of like not eating it as fast as I want? Really make peace with that. And only when you make peace with that feeling of wanting, 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 but just really, okay, wanting feels like this. Then let yourself. Because you don't want to put more food in your mouth because you don't want to feel what it feels like to not be putting food in your mouth. So if you just take a moment and make peace with the feeling of wanting, like I could be with this, I don't have to because I have food, but if I had to I could just, how do I know? Well, I'll be with it for 15 seconds and I'll really relax with it and I'll really feel it and I'll demonstrate to myself I can be with this feeling. You know, or your favorite show's on, and you wait 10 minutes, you sit there. It will feel like it's going to kill you. I mean, it's sort of funny how intense that can be. Or you're really cold, and you don't turn the heat up for a little bit. Or you're really hot, and you don't take the sweater off for a little bit. And then you get to know the, how sensuality runs the show, like that attachment it's not personal, but it really drives things. So uh, we're almost out of time. I just want to mention for anybody who's new uh, to the Buddhist studies that there is an expectation that next week for the last 15 minutes, 20 to 15 minutes, you will join into the small groups and you will share some of what you're learning because you're going to be reflecting both when you formally meditate during at home, but also all day long.
because especially with this course on sensuality, it's like all the time we're having sensual experiences. Notice the pleasure. Notice the drawback of attachment, the suffering, the agitation of attachment, and experiment with what would be the escape or the release. Like being a sensual person, having sensual experiences, but no burden. What would that look like? And we just we can move a little closer to that, like a little cleaner, a moment where we're having a sensual experience, but very little dependence, very little attachment. Someone offers you some your favorite chocolates, you know, and you really like make peace with the idea of not having it. And maybe for the first hour of hanging out with them, you don't eat one, you know. And then when you really feel like I'm okay not eating that chocolate. Then let yourself have some chocolate. See if you could just have one or two pieces. You know, and it's just this kind of exploration. And then we'll come back next week. I'll talk more for the first. You know, we have a guided meditation as we often do. I'll talk a little bit, but we'll save that fifteen or twenty minutes for groups of three, both for those of you here in the room, and Dave will be here, Dave, to、uh, help us divide up the people online for that. And I sent out one article by Tanasaro. And I'll send out some more articles that you can, for those of you who'd like to do some study, it's highly recommended if you have some time to do that. Probably more, I should say, but I see that we're out of time. Glad that people could be here tonight. Looking forward to doing this、uh, work together. There's so much to learn around our relationship to our sense experiences. So have a good week of practice, and I'll see you next Monday night. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org/donate.